0: Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you've preserved it for us, that we can study it, that we can learn from it, Lord, that we can apply it to our hearts. God, we pray for our time now as we uh, look at your word that you would just encourage and strengthen us. God, teach us more about who you are. God, you know as as all of us do that, that this is your time. God, this isn't uh, this isn't a word that's been prepared by a man. You've, you've wrecked that for me this week, and I thank you for it, God. Pray that you would speak through your servant, that you would be proclaimed clearly, Lord, that you would encourage each of our hearts, that we would draw closer to you as a result of looking at your word today. I thank you for this all in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, Ernest, I'm really glad that you came because uh, uh, you can testify that this week, we, we were sitting at one of these tables. And we were talking uh, about sermon preparation. We were talking about how we do sermon preparation and how, you know, we spend a particular amount of time on it and how we, how we get our notes together and those, those sorts of things. And, and I was sharing with you, I was like, you know, there's one time that, uh, that I was preparing a sermon. It was in Boston. And the outline just wasn't working for me. I was like, got this outline together. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to preach. Got my text. I know what's going to go on. Um, And as I was working on the outline, it just wasn't like, it wasn't coming to the proper conclusion. Everything wasn't really flowing in my spirit, right? And so it was really late. It was like 11 o'clock on Saturday night, okay? So I need to go to bed. And the funny thing is that the sermon was about rest. And so I, uh, I, went to Christy and I said, Hey, you need to pray for me because I have no idea what we're going to preach on tomorrow. And I'm supposed to preach tomorrow. So, uh, so I went to the back room. I prayed, I went before the Lord. I'm just like, Lord, what do you want to do with this? Um, this is yours. And so he said to me, go to bed. <laughs> I said, all right, okay, I'll, I'll go to bed. Um, and so I did. And the next morning I went and told the pastor, I was an associate at that point, And you know, I only get to preach maybe, uh, once a month or every other month or something. And so he said, hey, hey, you ready? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're ready for something, you know. Uh, the outline's totally shot, and um, but, you know, I've studied, and, and we're ready to go. God's gonna provide. And uh, and he did, and and it was a great, it it went really well and was very moving, and um, the Lord spoke through that. And so, anyway, so I was sharing that with Ernest just this week, and uh, and turns out, you've come for another one of those circumstances (laughs) where uh, I've gone through the normal preparation that I normally do, and the Lord has just wrecked it and said, okay, this isn't exactly how it's going to flow together. But, uh, you know, usually I even told, I even told Ernest how I put my notes in my Bible, and, you know, I've got a half sheet, and I hook it in here and all this, and so today is the first day that I'm, I'm preaching from chicken scratch uh, on, on this notepad, uh, and so, anyway, that's a, l- a little backstory for you, but, you know, the Lord's going to do what he's going to do in our hearts, and we're thankful for that, so, um, so I want to share uh, just to start, uh, especially for those of you who haven't been with us uh, in, in our study in Luke, Uh, Over the past couple weeks, we've looked at uh, Jesus' trial before Herod and before Pilate, and we saw that he was the innocent one slain. Over and over, he is proclaimed to be innocent by Herod, by Pilate, by those watching on. They're saying, he is innocent. Uh, Yet at the end of all that, they say to him, you're going to be crucified. The people rise up to say, crucify him, crucify him, and, and Pilate turns him over to the people And allows him to be crucified despite his innocence. And even last week, as we looked at, uh, we called the message Opposite Day. Throughout the day, people continue to proclaim Jesus is innocent over and over. uh, Yet he is the one hanging on the cross. And one of the main things that we saw last week was that uh, forgiveness is extended to all people. Okay? Jesus is hanging on a cross And as he's hanging there, looking down at the people that are mocking him on the cross, he says to them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We can't really wrap our minds around that. But the Son of God, who has left his kingdom and throne in heaven, has come to spend his life on earth humbly for 30 years and then preaching for three years, is now hung on a cross before his betrayers and says to his betrayers, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgiveness is extended to all, even to those who have hung Jesus there on the cross. It's extended to all. Um, and so we saw that there is there's no one that is um, too far from God's grace. In fact, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, you might remember the scene. On his left is a criminal, and on his right is a criminal. And one of them says you know, continues with the crowd and mocks Jesus and says, hey, you know, if you're the son of God, save us and save yourself. He's selfish, even in his crucifixion, as he's sitting there with Christ, he said, if you've got so much power, get us both off the cross. He is selfish in that. But the one next to him is saying, "Don't, don't you understand, we are justly punished for our crimes, as he's hanging there. And he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, Can I be there with you? And Jesus grants his grace to that criminal. Okay, the guy is hanging on a cross, justly crucified for his crimes. In his own words, he's repented. He said, I am justly here. I am here. My only hope is that this man next to me is who he says he is and can save me in the next life. And Jesus says to him, today you will be in paradise. Forgiveness is extended to all In all circumstances, even if you are potentially a murderer on a cross, in fact, Jesus took the place of a murderer on the cross, his forgiveness is extended to all. And we're very clear that his, even though his, his forgiveness is extended and available to all, is only accessed if we repent, acknowledge our sin, repent of it, and place our faith in Christ. Okay? There are some who would say, that Jesus' death on the cross is atonement for all humanity and that because of his death, all will go to heaven. And that's not a truth, okay? He died on the cross for those who will repent and place their faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there are some that are in and there are some that are out. Jesus', Jesus death on the cross, it was for all, but it's only for those who repent and place their faith in Christ Jesus. We're very clear on that. So those two things were last week, and, and today um, what we're looking at is what does it look like then to live as a saved individual? What does it look like to live saved? And the big idea that we're going to hit on, and we heard it in the scripture, was that a curtain is torn, and there's something very important about that that we'll go into. Um, before I jump into sort of the, the meat of it, I just want to look at the passage a, a little bit, get sort of what's going on, uh, share a few thoughts about, about what we read, and then I'll hit on uh, the main point again, which is uh, the curtain being torn and what that symbolizes for us as believers as we uh, live saved. So first we notice, as, as Ernest read for us, that um, Jesus is hanging there crucified, and uh, as, as he's there, uh, these cosmic things start to happen okay? From another gospel, we know that an earthquake is going on. Uh, from this gospel, we see that darkness has come over the land for the, for a period of three hours. It is dark, and this is the middle of the day, okay? So, the sun should be, like, right there, and <laughs> it is completely dark, okay? Um, it, it says in verse 40, uh, 45, the sun's light has failed, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but God is a sustainer of day and night. He is the one that brings the, the sun up and, and brings the moon up and he, he's the controller of it all. He set it all in motion, okay? And so he is the one that is uh, allowing the sun's light to fail in this moment. It's a symbol of something significant happening. And the next thing that we see is not only are cosmic wonders happening, the, the the light failing from the sun and the earthquake on the ground, but also the curtain in the temple has been torn and two. And that is not insignificant. The, uh, the, the temple curtain was likely two, uh, two sheets of, uh, of uh, curtain that, you know, you know how it's easier to tear a, a piece of fabric one way than it is the other way? So they're tearing the wrong direction, okay? So it's tearing down the wrong direction. This is not a very easy thing to tear from top to bottom. And so that's what happens. The curtain is torn in two. And we're gonna, Like I said, we're going to explore that a little more as we talk about what it is to live saved. And then we see Jesus, he's calling out, he calls out in a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathes his last last breath. And when this happened, the, the centurion turns, and as we said over the past couple weeks, uh, over and over, people are being declaring that Jesus is innocent and here too a roman centurion sees what happens and says Jesus is innocent surely this was the son of god surely this man was innocent the next thing we see is that the crowds that had had assembled there there are there are many crowds that these are uh, uh, part of the crowd that is not Jesus' disciples are are watching. They're seeing the cosmic signs. They're seeing the sun be blotted out. They're seeing the earthquake uh, in their midst. They're hearing about the curtain being torn. They're seeing all this happen. And before, when they were mocking Jesus and, and proud about what was happening, saying, we've finally got him, we've crucified him, and we are right in what we're doing. They were mocking him. They turned from mocking to beating their breasts and going home. A sign of regret As to what's happening, they they know that something big has happened, and they know that they're partially at fault. Next, we see that his acquaintances. This is the only time that the disciples or Jesus' followers are listed in this sort of uh, distant manner. His acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. They're just observing, saying, just sort of taking it all in. Like again, as we've seen through the Book of Luke, they're. The whole time, they're trying to grasp what is Jesus about? And he is just rocking their world day after day about what is the kingdom of God and what is the meaning of this? What is his kingdom going to look like? Jesus says over and over, it's not a physical kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. But they keep placing their hope in that. And here they're finally coming to terms with the fact that nope, it's not a physical kingdom. He's dead on the cross. Like, they're hit with that. They're just watching these things, trying to contain, like, what is going on? God is faithful. He's going to come back to them and and assure them of His plan is still in place, as we'll see next week when we look at the resurrection. But uh, for now, they're left in this questioning moment, saying, what is going on? What's happening? Next, we see just a a brief description of of Jesus' burial. Uh, We see that a man uh, who is actually part of the council, okay? He's one of the ones that's part of the council that sent Jesus to the cross, that proclaimed his his guilt and brought him to Pilate and brought him to Herod and all this sort of thing. He was part of that group. But it says, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and was looking for the kingdom of God. So even within this council that we had previously studied as being uh, one that had turned Jesus over, there is one who wasn't able to voice his opinion strongly enough or, uh, or, or something. He wasn't heard. His voice obviously wasn't heard, but he never consented, it says. He didn't consent to their decision or their action. He was always looking for the kingdom of God. He knew that something was in Jesus. Something was important about him. So this man, it says, he went to Pilate and asks for the body. He goes to Pilate, asks for the body, takes it down, uh, does some preparation, puts it in a linen shroud, and puts, puts him in a tomb that hadn't ever been laid in. That's important because, uh, because it's a purity issue uh, in their culture. And so, uh, again, Jesus' innocence extends even through religious purity. Uh, he is laid in a tomb that has never been touched by another corpse. Okay, That's a very important thing. So he lays him in the tomb, and uh, and then finally we see that the women prepare some uh, spices and ointments. And this is really just uh, an allusion for us to the coming passage. uh, In verses 54 to 56, it says, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how the body was laid. Okay, so the, the women observed the tomb. They saw that Jesus was in it, how he was laying. They're the last ones to see Jesus in the tomb. And they then return and prepare spices and ointments. And it says they observe the Sabbath day. What we'll see next week is that they're also the first ones to come and see the tomb is empty. This This isn't a small note. It's important that Luke here is saying, he's testifying to uh, Romans and to the, his culture that our testimony about Jesus' last days was that he was last seen by women in the tomb and he was first, the tomb was first seen empty by these same women. And that's important because their culture would not respect the testimony of women. And so Luke is saying, these, these are the facts, okay? The women saw it saw that he, was the, that he was put in the tomb, and they saw that the tomb was empty first. The women were the first one to see it. He puts that. It's interesting. Luke is one of the Gospels where uh, women are are uh, focused on a little bit more than the other Gospels. And so Luke is saying, hey, listen, these are the facts. The women were the last to see, and the women were the first to see that the tomb was empty. He's not trying to hide anything. He's saying this, this is how it happened. Um, and, you know, if you were writing a story, if you were putting together a story in this time and you wanted to uh, solidify your case and provide the proper testimony, you'd probably say that uh, a, a, a man was the one that saw her and the, him in the tomb last, and a man was the one that discovered. You would probably say that, because that adds more validity to your case. But what we see here is that Luke is focusing on the simple facts of the case, and the women saw him last, and the women were the first one to be there. And that's how it happened, plain and simple. And uh, so anyway, you, uh, you find these little nuggets throughout uh, the Bible where the Bible is just being brutally honest, saying, this is what happened, whether for good or for bad, for its case, these, these are the details. And so uh, I respect that very much uh, about the Word of God. It, it, it isn't uh, shrouded in, uh, um, you know, uh, um, What's the, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, it's, not gl- it's not glossed over, you know? It's not sugar-coated, you know? It's, it's just is how it is. This is. These are the events as they happen. This is how God was working. It's a very powerful moment. Okay, so that's, uh, that's kind of what hap- what's happening with Jesus' death and his burial. But again, the one thing that I want to focus on throughout the rest of our time together is this one simple point about the curtain. And verse 45 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two the curtain was torn okay so what does that what does that mean? Does anyone know any significance about the curtain in the temple in Ju- in judaism any any understanding of of what the curtain in the temple did or, or symbolized or uh, any thoughts? Yeah. Okay, so it's separate there was curtains separating places in the temple? Explain that a little further. What is that's just um place where only I mean, the priests were allowed to go once a year. Okay. And uh, it, if they weren't uh, uh, purified if things were right in the sacrifice, yeah. it, that would kill it. Yeah. Yeah 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 that's right that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep exactly exactly all right so there are there are these two curtains, and one that separates the outside of the temple to the inside, and the second one is the one that separates the the holy place from the most holy place, and this is the curtain that is torn, okay, and something interesting that uh that uh, Phil was hitting on there was that that the priest was the one that would go in, okay, to the Holy of Holies. And he would only do that one time a year. And he would do that to atone for the unintention, unintentional sins of the people of Israel, okay? The temple is set up as a structure to uh, symbolize, to really demonstrate our relationship with God, the people of God's relationship with God. Okay, so it's a symbol of our relationship with God. It is showing uh, his character, it is showing his holiness, and it does that in a number of ways. So the Temple Mount uh, is a set-apart place. Okay, you have to be pure to go onto the Temple Mount. And in the Temple Mount is where they actually make the sacrifices. There's a basin out there where they, uh, or there's, a, there's an altar out there where they, you know, they where they uh, you know, do their work on the, on, the, on the animals or whatever. They slay them there. Uh, and then, as you approach the the temple, uh, there's there's the entrance to the holy place, which is the first room in the temple. And in there, you've got a number of things. Um, you've got the the bread of the presence. Actually, I want to move to uh, Hebrews nine, which will explain a lot of this better than I am on uh, on ad lib. So uh, let me go to Hebrews nine, and you're welcome to to turn with me there. Uh, we're going to read a, a a little bit of this, starting Hebrews nine. Verse one. This will really talk a little bit about the earthly holy place. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 1. <clears throat> it says now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. This is what Phil was talking about, about the priest going in and out, and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lamp stand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Okay, so the lampstand is a symbol of God lighting the world, okay? Uh, that's his, his symbol of him lighting the world. The bread of the presence is him providing for his people. You know, the, the bread that is provided to uh, the priests, actually, are the ones that get to eat that, but it's a symbol of God's provision of food for them. Um, and uh, then, then the table, and it was called the, the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant okay so the manna the the food that God provided in the in the Exodus for the people of Israel as they were journeying for 40 years just to go 8 days journey <laughs> uh, 4 days journey whatever it was uh, and then Aaron's staff, the one that's showing that God has set up spiritual authority, okay? There were those that were mad about Aaron's uh, priestly line and that they would be the ones that would be the authority over the temple. They were angry about that. They wanted to usurp it and take it for their own. And they, so they threw their staffs down, and, and Aaron's was the one that butted, okay? So there's spiritual authority. Uh, and the next one, the tablets of the covenant. The covenant that God gave to the people of Israel, the law that he gave, the perfect law that he gave, um, Uh, you know, the Ten Commandments and and those that stem from them. And uh, so those are all in that, uh, in the the ark there. So next it says, above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can, cannot now speak in detail. The fact is that all of those things symbolize the character of God, and mainly they symbolize his holiness, okay? just like uh, the fact that the priests come in uh, once a year to cleanse it uh, to, to, for the Day of Atonement, and that uh, daily they're offering sacrifices in the holy place uh, to, to atone for the people of Israel. All these things are happening to proclaim this fact, that God is holy. Okay, the temples are not new with the Jewish people. Okay, there had been temples all over the place. There were pyramids that you could climb up, and the closeness in height to God was said to make you closer. And so, the ziggurats is what they were called. Uh, and there, so there's there's those. There's also towers that people built to exalt the greatness of man. So temple worship was not new. And God is he, he's amazing because he uses symbols of our own understanding to transform our understanding of him to a proper understanding. So people are making their own temples over here about, okay, this is how we relate to God. And, and God says to the people of Israel, okay, this is how God operates, okay? Not only am I separating a holy people with their holy land, but also they're going to worship on a holy mountain and on that mountain you've got to be pure to be on it. And then if you want to get into the holy place, only a certain people are going to be ministering at the holy place. And to be with God, only one priest once a year goes into the holy of holies and is in the presence of God atoning for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, what's communicated is that God is a holy God. Our effort What's communicated in the temple and in all that whole worship process is that our effort is not enough. We cannot do it on our own, okay? I want to emphasize the, the priest that went in there once a year only atoned for unintentional sins, not even sins that are committed willfully. Just the unintentional ones. This is just about keeping the people in a religious purity. God is the one that forgives sin, not some order of worship. God is the one who forgives sin. So going on in six, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, but he once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, so again, as long as that those, that. that Uh, movement into the Holy of Holies is intact, that's the way we approach God. But what we see in our passage today is that the curtain is torn when Jesus makes his sacrifice. The curtain is torn. So it says going on in in, uh, chapter 9 verse 11 of Hebrews, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, innocent without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay. Jesus is telling us that as he's hanging on the cross and the temple curtain is torn, He has provided a way that our dead works, okay, our effort that we place our hope in so many times, our dead works can be transformed from dead works to the service of the living God. It no longer do we trust in the ways of man or in our own effort or in the, the purity regulations set up by a temple process. We now trust in the blood of Jesus so that we can serve the living God. We are very, very religious people. Even us, there's a particular order of worship that we want to do, and there's something we're comfortable with. Uh, We're comfortable with authority over us, actually. We like, uh, look at the the Israelites. They wanted a king, okay? They wanted someone in, in authority over them. God was their king, and they cried out for a king. God's saying, I am your king. Don't trust in men, okay? Anyway, so we are religious people. We are constantly sinning in that regard. We trust our own effort. We trust the establishment of, of religion. We trust those things. But what we're seeing here is that the curtain was torn. Okay, So we enter into relationship with Jesus through Jesus and through Jesus alone. No longer do we trust in rituals of man. No longer do we trust in, uh, in self-fulfillment, in self-effort. Okay? We only trust in the grace of Christ Jesus and his blood poured out on the cross. See, before Jesus, there are, uh, there are two types of religion that you can engage in. You can engage in uh, performing rituals to appease a god. Okay? You, can, you can do that. Or you can uh, spend your time exalting the greatness of man. Okay? In the Old Testament, we see both. We see people falling over to the appeasement of a God, and we also see people falling over to the appeasement of humanity. See the Tower of Babel, people declaring their greatness by showing how amazing they could build this temple to their name. We do that today, every day. Look at the the skyscrapers around the world that have a particular name on them. You you tell me we're not building temples to uh, to outdo one another and to show how great this people is or that people is. We do it all the time. We trust in our own effort. We have people that uh, that believe that uh, simply our goal in life is to sustain our humanity. We don't sustain our own hum- humanity. God is the sustainer of all life. Okay, and there is religion tied to the sustaining effort of humanity, okay? We're not called to just sustain humanity. God's going to do that. We can trust him for that, okay? We don't have to work to sustain humanity. God is the one sovereign over that, because there's two types of religion before Jesus, the ones that totally is in uh, exalting and appeasing a God, and the other that is in uh, uh, essentially preservation of humanity and, and extending it and extending the greatness of mankind, And in Jesus, what we see is a totally new covenant. A new work is happening in him. No longer are we in some, uh, some battle to appease a God or, or to try and approve, make ourselves worthy and, approve, uh, and have his approval. I don't think that's how God ever intended it. The, the whole temple structure again is its only purpose is to show that God is holy. It's not for people to put their trust in for their salvation. Again, the, the high priest only cleansed for unintentional sins. Okay, so what, what does that mean for the one that sinned intentionally? Well, there is grace for them if they place their trust in the living God, even in the Old Testament. Look at all the people on the list of the Hall of Faith. Those guys did some sinning, okay? They did a lot of sinning, a lot of intentional sinning, but God saved them because they repented and placed their faith in the living God. Okay, so that truth is back there, but uh, again, uh, too often we get get bogged down in the in the religiosity of it. But so in Jesus. Uh, what we see in this temple being uh, the temple curtain being torn is that now the presence of God is no longer isolated into one place where it's accessed by the holy uh, the, the high priest once a year. You now the presence of God is unleashed to all people, and as we'll see as we move into our study in Acts later, that the Spirit falls on people, and then we now are become the temple of the Holy Spirit is what Paul says. No longer is there a physical temple that we've got to go to in order to experience God's presence. No, his Holy Spirit, because of our trust in Jesus Christ for repentance of our sins and salvation in him, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. You cannot put enough words to that to try and explain it. The fact is that God lives in you if you've placed your faith in him. You are now a temple. That is crazy. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. The Spirit of God now lives in you if you place your faith in Christ Jesus. We have a direct personal access to God. We no longer go through some priesthood. Again, too often in the American church, uh, people look up and say, oh, I got to go through pastor. I got to go through pastor. If I'm going to get the right access to God, if my prayers are going to be heard, they're going to be heard because I went through the pastor. We do that. We are that religious. We have to remember as, as just people working everyday jobs as Christians, we have a mission and we are just as holy as pastor. Pastor just has a different mission. That's all. That's all. You have the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian just working in the workforce. You are no more holy or less holy than pastor. We have to get that through our minds that it's not about some hierarchy. God did away with the hierarchy when the temple was torn, or the temple curtain was torn. We have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. So what does it look like to live saved? I'd say there's a couple of things. There's a personal transition, there's a personal importance, and there's a corporate importance, okay? So first we see that Each individual that encounters the living God through Jesus Christ is personally transformed, okay? And then each of us individually are given a personal mission to fulfill. So I'm going to tell you just some about mine. My personal transformation happened when I was seven years old. I was at a family camp. I gave my life to the Lord at that moment. I was baptized in a creek, a, a beautiful creek. I actually went back to visit it at one point while I was in high school. and was like, hey, that's a pretty sweet creek. I'm glad I was baptized there. Um, and so I was baptized one I seven. I really believed that, you know, at that moment, I understood all I needed to understand um, in accepting Christ as my Savior. When I was 13, uh, I was in sixth grade, and I went to a summer camp. And uh, before that, that summer, I had sort of gotten into being too cool, you know, like fitting in. And, uh, you know, uh, back then it was a big deal. I was like, you know, cursing with my friends or whatever. I was bad. Um, and, you know, seriously, I was just living for myself, trying to fit in, you know. And so that summer I went to camp and uh, I got convicted. I was like, man, Lord, you want all of me. You want my whole life. Like when I trusted you, you wanted all of me. So I learned at the moment that God is Holy. Okay, I learned that he was holy and that my giving my life over to him wasn't just some uh, simple deed that, that gained me entrance into heaven. No, it transformed my life to one that is given over to Christ and to him wholly. All that I have for his glory. Okay, so that's something I learned at 13. When I was 17, by that time, I had been a, been a Christian and been in this new understanding of, yeah, all my life for the Lord. For four years, I'd been like that. Okay, and then I got prideful. I had, a, I had a car that had a Jesus, huge Jesus sticker. Biggest Jesus sticker you could fit on that car was on there. And on the front of the car, it said, Real Men Love Jesus. And I would drive that thing around, proud of my identity as a Christian. And so in my junior year of high school, I am like, seriously, like uh, totally trusting in my identity as a Christian among people. And then New Year's Day of, the, I guess that'd be 2001 or something, um, I'm sitting in my room and I'm listening to some worship music and you know, I didn't intend to have a really strong moment with the Lord. I was just listening to some praise music and he just absolutely wrecked me. I was bawling like a baby and basically undone because I realized at that moment that I placed my identity in being a Christian. Okay? Our identity is not in being a Christian. I had, you know, gained some you know, central popularity as a result of having this lifestyle, and I was known for being a Christian. Okay, so you can't put your hope in that. God was saying, um, You're not as big as you think you are, you're not holy. And He just absolutely wrecked me. Um, he, uh, I wrote some notes about this. He, uh, what did I say about this here? I told you I was chicken scratching. Um, yeah. Yeah, he told me that it's not about my effort. It's not about the things I do. It's not about the identity that I had made. It's about the grace that God had poured out on my life, okay? I wasn't holy at the moment. I was trusting in my own religiosity. God wrecked me that day and said, no, listen, buddy, it's not about you. In fact, uh, you know, in, in reality, like, I don't need you. I want you. I desire you to be a part of this work And if you will surrender yourself to me and stop being proud of your identity as a Christian and start being proud of following me, then I have something I could probably do with you. I've got a mission for you. Okay, so the second thing that we see, Jesus personally transforms us. Each of us have a story, if we're in Christ, of his personal transformation in our lives. The second thing is that he gives us each personally a mission. And that mission is composed of of two things there's an evangelistic portion to it, and there's an equipping portion to it. And at Restoration Church, we call that going together, and we'll talk about that a little more with the corporate portion. But uh, God gives you uh, an evangelistic calling, a mission, and he also gives you gifts to equip the fellow believers, okay? So each of us have a mission that entails going out into the places God has given us to go to, whether it be work or school or uh, doing church work or just hanging out with friends on a Friday night or uh, going to a baseball game or whatever it is. God has given us people that we have a sphere of influence over. And our mission as Christians, each of us have one of these, is to share Jesus in some way or another in as winsome way as possible, in as persuasive way as possible, share his transformation that he's done in us with those around us. Okay, so that's, that's a mission that each of us have. The second thing is that we each have gifts and abilities that God has given us to equip one another as Christians. Okay, God is amazing. He didn't, he didn't give anyone, he didn't give anyone all the gifts. He didn't. He didn't give them the fullness of it. He gave them to us, each individually, as the Spirit guided. So one has a tongue, one has healing, one has encouragement, one has a word. All these things were given as the Spirit guided. It is that for a purpose that we wouldn't, because again, as I say, we get really religious and we want to place all our hope in an individual to lead us and guide us. And what he's telling us to do is depend entirely on him. Okay? So he wisely separated all these gifts out among his people so that we would be most effective when we were together or working together for his glory. If I've got the gift of faith and you don't have the gift of faith, guess what? We're a good pair because I can come into your life and say, "Listen, God is going to do that for you. He is going to work in your life. The things that you are uh, you're discouraged about, he has a power and plan for." I can say that with faith if I'm a person of faith. I'm not I'm not naturally that. We thankfully have people like that in our fellowship that come and say, you know what? God's going to do something awesome here. And it's going to be amazing. When it happens, we're going to be so surprised. There are people of faith like that. Uh, and and so we each have these different gifts, this, this mission to equip others. So there's personal transformation and then there's personal mission. In the same way, there's also corporate transformation and corporate mission. Okay? So... Uh, fact is, as we gather together, and, and at, at Restoration Church, we do that on Wednesday nights in, in Bible study and community group, and on Sunday nights uh, in worship. As we gather together, Jesus transforms us. He tells us a story about someone else that we hadn't heard. He tells us we get to share as a group about what Christ is doing. We get to pray for one another corporately and we get to see corporately those prayers being answered. It's not just about a personal thing. It's also about a corporate thing. I'm seeing, man, do you remember when you prayed for that? Yeah, that was awesome. I'm seeing that fulfilled in your life. Sometimes you don't even see that the prayer is being fulfilled in your life. You have to have someone else look at your life and say, you know what? God's filling that thing out. That's awesome. And so we get to corporately be transformed by what God is doing. And second, we have uh, a corporate mission. God has called each fellowship, each fellowship group of people that he assembles together. That's what a church is, an assembly of people. Um, Each of those have a particular mission. Our mission happens to be to be here, (laughs) to worship Jesus in downtown Clearwater, to proclaim his gospel as clearly as we possibly can. That's what we're here trying to do. And we call that going together. Going, You, you have a mission. If you're in Christ, you've got a mission, you've got somewhere God wants you to go. Together, you're not doing it on your own. You're doing it with a group of people that God is assembling to bless you and to bless the mission that you have, uh, that he has for you. So this is, this is an amazing truth that we see in this passage today, I and mean, we reflect on it some more, but the fact is that the temple curtain is torn, okay? So no longer trust in religiosity, okay? No longer trust in hierarchies and systems of, of man, Listen, the churches, yeah, we, we use, you know, things to be effective and, and we have to organize things and that's good. Those things are good. But when we start trusting in those things rather than in what God has done in us personally, we miss the boat. We start exalting other individuals higher than they ought to be exalted. So let's remember today that the curtain is torn. You as a Christian now have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. You have just as much power in your prayer as pastor does, okay? We have to believe that as Christians. There's not some super holiness with a pastor, okay? He's just as broken and messed up as you guys. We're all broken and messed up, okay? The fact is, because of Jesus, we have now become the righteousness of God. And the, the word tells us in James that the prayers of the righteous one are powerful and effective. So if we're the righteousness of God then our prayers are powerful and effective. So we have to believe that wholeheartedly. We have direct access to God because the temple has been torn because Jesus gave his life on the cross. Without him doing that, we have no hope. There's no way that we can come to the Father except through Christ, his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Again, he was innocent, yet he was slain. And he extended forgiveness to all people, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of what they had done, He gave it to them. He said, here, if you repent of what you've done and place your faith in me, you can have salvation. You can have the spirit of God living in your life right now, transforming you and giving you a mission and a purpose to serve him. You no longer have to trust in effort. No longer have to trust in systems. You no longer have to trust in someone else's secret knowledge to move you forward, okay? Everything you need for life and godliness is in this book. And not only that, again, that your Holy Spirit is living right inside of you. You don't need to pay someone exorbitant amounts of money to try and overcome the fears in your life. You don't have to. You don't have to do it. Christ has defeated all of them through the cross. He's given you all power and authority through Christ Jesus to fulfill the mission that he has for you. He has the same thing is true for Restoration Church. He has given us all authority and power to proclaim his gospel and to worship him as he ought to be worshiped. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us probably a longer time in the word tonight. Thank you for, God, your graciousness to provide for us. Thank you that in spite of circumstances, in spite of um, things that are happening in, in the natural, Lord, you have empowered us to serve you as you have called us to serve you. Well, that phrase is true. Where you guide, you provide. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Jesus, we Our single desire in this evening is to see you worshipped, to see you praised for what you have done. We thank you for the night already that we've been able to fellowship together to worship you for what you've done. We've been able to set prayers before your throne asking you to act, Thank you that because of Jesus, those prayers are powerful and effective. Thank you that because we prayed, you're going to move in Egypt. Thank you that because we prayed, you're going to move in the city of praise. Thank you that because we prayed, you're going to move in the Hispanic church on Cleveland Street. Thank you that because we prayed, you are going to move in Sam's life. Thank you, God. Our prayers are effective. You hear them. Thank you, Jesus, most of all, that you gave your life for us. Lord, without you, we have no hope. We're just left running around, placing our trust in people and in things and in systems of thought that fail us because they're of us. Thank you that in Jesus we have direct access to God the Father, that you've sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to guide and direct us in all things. Thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.